I'm at the grocery store. I'm in line. I'm checking out. I've got the girls with me. Just a handful of things that I'm getting at the grocery store. And in front of me is uh, this kid, maybe 13, 14 years old. He's with his dad. And I'm just standing in line, minding my own business, trying to sort of wrangle the girls to make sure they don't, they've gotten into this, at least Charlotte has gotten into this uh, development where she likes to just bite things at the grocery store. Is she one of the gross kids who's always biting on Right, like the, so uh, like I look down cart, and she's got a, I pull a candy bar out of her hands and you can see a bite mark in the wrapper. <laughs> just like... <laughs> Do you have to buy it? Right. No, I mean, I won't say what I did with it. I did not buy it. So you just put it back? Maybe. <laughs> so anyways, I'm in line, minding my own business. I mean, I can't imagine someone's going to pick up a candy bar and see bite marks in it and be like, ah, I'm going to buy this. Well, I don't. I'm passing the buck. Well, yeah, and I kind of want to know what how you define minding my own business because taking a bitten candy bar out of your daughter's mouth and putting it back okay, on the I'll rack say this. does not sound I like was minding not, your I business. was not bothering the t- the teenage punk standing in front of me. Okay, so that's where we're headed. So All anyways, right. minding my own business. Yeah, after, is, after you put this, the candy this bar. This kid is in front of me and somewhere in between events of grabbing the candy bar, making sure my kids aren't running off, I look up, and this kid is trying to take a sneak pic of me. I look up, and I see him holding his phone, like, right over his shoulder. Right. And the only thing I see on his phone is me standing in line. <laughs> and and as soon as I look up, of course he puts the phone away, right? He's right. got, he knows it. I don't know what to do, because it's like... Did I really, is this kid really trying to take a picture of me? Why is he trying to take a picture of me? So I'm standing there. I'm like, now I've let myself go over the past couple years. I'm well aware of that. But I'm wearing clothes. I'm fully clothed. I'm not like missing teeth, right? I'm not like, I don't have like dirt marks on my face. I don't deserve to be like sneak sneak picked. I'm, this is not a people of Walmart situation, right? I'm not like sitting in a motorized wheelchair, right? I'm just standing in line with my girls. So I don't know what to do. I'm just standing there. If I should even do anything, if I should just sort of uh, assume my role as like a middle-aged scrub that now gets his picture taken by teenagers. Right. That's more or less what I do. I'm thinking, like, should I, like, tell this kid's dad that he's being a jerk or whatever? No, you say, like, you can take a picture of me, but you have to friend me on Facebook first. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, anyways, we move forward a little bit further in line. And then this this kid turns around, and it's like a... um. It's like a Jessica Rabbit situation where at the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where Roger's chasing what he thinks is Jessica Rabbit, 
and then this lady turns oh, around yeah. and she looks totally. This Old kid turns around. He's got huge like Coke bottle glasses. His ears are way sticking out. Shaved head, not shaved, but like buzzed hair. You know, gaps. He just looks like an awkward fourteen-year-old. And I just be like, look, kid, like, like uh, you take the plank out of your eye, right? <laughs> Isn't that the saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, or from between your teeth. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, that was it. I just was like, it just was a weird space to be in. I, I mean, could it have been linked to you taking the chewed candy bar <laughs> and putting it back on the rack? I mean, did that it ever cross your mind? It may have, but I can't imagine anybody's paying that close attention to what I'm doing. Apparently he is. Maybe. Well, I mean, to me, I feel like I don't know how I would have responded to me, it seems appropriate in that in that position to just say, "What, hey buddy, what is it? Mm-hmm. Like, let me in. What's going on? Yeah, look at this middle-aged dad, two girls, ah, <laughs> standing on. What items did you have? We had Cheez Its because the girls wanted Cheez Its and just like milk and just like fruit snacks, just like regular stuff that you get at the grocery store. It wasn't okay, anything out of the ordinary. That's the only other thing that crossed my mind because I went shopping the other day and because I had to buy stuff for my son, mm-hmm. it was when I put the items on the belt, it made me immediately self-conscious yeah but was he with you or were you just no, by yourself which is why i was self-conscious right because <laughs> it was stuff where you know it was like i remember early in my marriage when i had to buy at least some stuff mm-hmm. if she's like oh just go pick me up this one thing and i'm buying it and i'm just like mm-hmm. do i you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's no big deal if i don't make a big deal about it right but in my head i just kind of want to be like Wives, <laughs> just like whatever, right. just to just offset like the yeah, uh, right? Yeah. Am I right? Um, or like I remember buying condoms and like reaching with my left hand to hand it just so they like I'm married, I'm not just like you know, what I mean, like just want people to see that just a subtle way. I'm not some crazy swinger, I'm not, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is my one purchase uh-huh. every six months or whatever, right. But is there a word for getting sneak picked? Is that it? Have Probably. I, I have no idea what it is. I'm sure there is. And there has to be a better word than We can do better yeah. than sneak pick. Sure. since we recorded <laughs> i know i was thinking about coming over like i wonder what stories we're gonna have to to intro and that's is the there, is there any one story that could bridge the gap between now and mid-august well yeah i was <laughs> i was gonna try i'm gonna save mine for next episode okay. i guess but uh mine are about haircuts mm. so you can i've got forward. a lot of, to say about haircuts exactly ex- right. so do i so we'll but we'll hold we'll table that yeah in case nothing happens in our culture between now and the next time we record, right? We'll at least have some haircuts. Right. To talk Which, about. judging by the El Chapo conversation we just had, 
I'm imagining the headline in the next couple of weeks is going to be Sean Penn assassinated by El Chapo's hitman <laughs> for giving his position away. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Okay. So was it last week that we saw Hateful Eight? Yes. Um, I saw it a few weeks ago and then I saw it again with you. Mm-hmm. After we saw it, you said that we sort of talked about our initial, your your initial impression. You said you loved it. Has anything changed in between when you saw it now? Has your love grown? It has actually. Really? I've, yeah, I've I've uh, I really want to see it twice. Mm. I'm I'm really um, anxious to take my wife um, to see it. And um, and is there any particular reason, or is it just because you enjoyed it? you know that she would enjoy it. I think that she would enjoy it, but it is selfish too. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like, I think that she'll enjoy it, but mainly I want to see it again. Mm -hmm. And as we established on, I think it was the best of three podcast. Your wife is a total gore fiend, right? Exactly. (laughs) I'm ready to fall in love with her all over again. Right. When, uh, when the violence kicks in and hateful eight. Uh (laughs) Okay. So, Uh, you said that you that you loved it. Have you have you have you seen or read any of the negative feedback surrounding yes. it? Okay, yeah, because I want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I've I've read a lot and I listened to some podcasts of people who who did not like it. Um, I jumped on Letterboxd because I I keep track of films and I have all these lists of different directors ranking their films mm. and just like to do it and initially i jumped on quentin tarantino's and threw in the hateful eight i think i did that night and i think it was a little late or maybe it was later when i did it because when i went back and looked at it today i put it as my second favorite tarantino film really which is not true it can't <laughs> be true i i think that was just like the uh-huh. initial so i had to rearrange it and and i realized that that list was way out of whack i thought um so I kind of rearranged it and put it down a little more. So it's kind of mid tier, kind of towards the top of Tarantino's mm-hmm. of au- au- over mm-hmm. your, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, but it has grown in estimation. Even as I've heard the negative stuff, it's made me run more to my positive feelings. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, I liked, the movie a lot uh on kind of a surface level uh i don't think that's expected of you yeah i i don't know if it holds up to a lot of the i don't really think well i don't really think it 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 can hold up to a lot of the uh I think the problem is I don't I have I I haven't heard the argument made that it is this very sort of intelligent uh movie that is culturally relevant. I haven't heard that argument be made. I wouldn't agree that it holds up to that argument, but I've heard a lot of criticism about how it is not that it's thin you know what i'm saying not much even there. though i'm not hearing people say it is that thing 
a lot of the negative criticism I'm, I'm hearing it is saying it's not that. You know what I'm saying? That it's shallow, that right. it is possibly racist, mm-hmm. possibly misogynistic. Ch- and it's and it's kind of not just childish, but it's it's kind of petulant. It's it's more of Tarantino's right. petulant humor right. than kind of clever. I found it to be really entertaining. I thought it was a lot of fun to watch. And for a movie that is almost three hours long. And I saw it twice. Neither time did I feel like it was three hours long. Yeah. Especially for a movie that is very, quote talky. unquote, slow, exposition-y, talky for the first two hours, probably. It still breezed along great for me. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed all that stuff. Uh, I didn't really... I was disappointed with the conclusion. Um. And we'll talk about it some more. We'll we'll get into the details of that some more. But and that's part of the reason why I wanted to see it again was that reveal in the conclusion. I was, so I was disappointed a little bit with that. But overall, I thought it was very entertaining. A lot of fun. I had a lot of fun watching it. I was never uncomfortable with the use of the N word. I was never uncomfortable with the quote unquote misogyny, which I don't think is in the movie. I was uncomfortable with our audience's reaction to it when we saw <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, but overall, I thought it was good, um, and I was surprised. Now, I guess I also have uh, the perspective. I listened to Tarantino did an interview with Brett Easton Ellis on his podcast, mm. and I listened to that, and I think a lot of the stuff that gets labeled as petulance is just what Tarantino finds to be funny, which I guess that is petulance. Mm-hmm. I guess that is immaturity, but I don't I didn't see any of it, especially I didn't see it the first time I saw the movie. I especially didn't see it after listening to the interview. To me it just registered as, oh, all of this way over the top violence, which is something else we'll talk about, but I don't think there's as much in this as his other movies. Is just what he, he. I mean, he's finding this stuff hilarious. He finds the <laughs> absolute ridiculous nature of someone getting shot in the face and their head literally exploding to be hilarious. He's not doing it to be mean. He's not doing it to gross you out. He's doing it because he thinks it's funny, and it right. is funny when you yeah. look at it that way, right? Because it's a movie and it's ridiculous, right? Um, so that was kind of my takeaway from it. Yeah, I think I'm in complete agreement with everything that you've said there. I think I'm going to probably push back against you a little bit on the on the depth of thought that is represented in the film. I mm. got a little more out of it than maybe even Tarantino intended. Um, right. But I enjoyed thinking about this film in a way where I was surprised at how quickly and easily people dismissed it. And then also in conversations that I'd hear where people would defend it without being able to like support their viewpoints it was just more of a reaction of like oh come on Mm -hmm. and then the conversation stopped there and i was like um so i I think there's there's more there there than what some people are giving him credit for yeah i and i just listened to um the latest flop house today have you listened to it i did and he kind of talks about 
they they talk about hateful eight at the very end, right? Right. So it was either uh, maybe it was Elliot who said something along the lines of his his level of filmmaking does not match his uh, emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of where I where I come down on the movie. Tarantino is, I think you could say, a master filmmaker. He's he's just knows exactly what he's doing, exactly what he wants, and exactly how to get it. And he gets it. Um, and he doesn't really compromise in that. And I think regardless of whether I like his movies or you like his movies, I don't think you can argue with that point. Mm-hmm. He is a excellent movie maker. Mm-hmm. I don't think his emotional intelligence <laughs> is as developed as his filmmaking skills. So I see the I see the racial allegories of um Marquess's character. I mean, it's not difficult to not see them, right? Mm-hmm. They're there bright as bright as day. Um but I, I I don't think they they the problem is they just they don't equal up to the to the actual movie you're watching. And I think in the 90s when he first started making movies and getting super popular and we hadn't really seen that level of filmmaking, I would say from a younger filmmaker, that you could you could get away with it, right? And also, too, because I think in the 90s, the culture itself, our culture wasn't as intelligent as we are now. We weren't as hyper-aware as we are now. Um, maybe intelligence is not the right word there. <laughs> maybe, you know, you know something, something along the lines of being more sensitive, more aware, whatever. Um, the problem is his filmmaking skills has continued to grow, but he's more or less is delivering the message in the same way. You know what I'm saying? So I, I feel like it's he's sort of getting piled on more and more as as the culture gets more intelligent, the culture sort of reads more and takes in more. Now all of a sudden these things that was fine in you know the 90s or the early 2000s it's like oh okay now i'm looking at this differently for example the um misogyny which probably again quote unquote misogyny which i think probably would have gone completely unchecked in the 90s or in one of any of his other movies probably but now all of a sudden with all of the social justice stuff with all of the hyper awareness around this stuff. It's like this issue that's not even in the movie in my mind. All of a sudden you've got misogyny being slapped on a director who in every single other one of his movies has a female lead, right? Who is stronger than the males minus Django. You know, Jackie Brown Jackie Brown, amazing. Kill Bill, and Glorious Bastards, like Pulp Fiction, like these are all movies that were, especially Pulp Fiction, were known for like touting female strength and empowerment. And then all of a sudden, people are just, you know, it, it's it, part of it too, I think, is just 
internet outrage, right? Like here's something we can be angry about, whether there's any basis for it or not. Yeah, I don't know that the mood wasn't there because I think feminism and feminist thought, you know, goes back decades and, you know, you want to go to suffragette, you want to go as far back as in, in history as you care to go. I think you can find some traces and threads of feminist thought. I'm no scholar. Um, but what what I I made a similar observation and I tried to write a little review on Letterboxd and what my complaint was was that I felt like filmmakers get to a certain level of popularity where you cannot escape expectation right. as an audience member. So Pulp Fiction can come out of nowhere and knock you sideways when Christopher Walken delivers a whole like five minute monologue about sticking a watch mm-hmm. up his butt to mm-hmm. give to a boy yeah. later on, right? Like, and uh, and you can just be knocked back by that and have no other context for where that came from, mm-hmm. right? Um, or Reservoir Dogs, that then when you see it again and again and again in different ways. Then you start to anticipate, and then it gets to a point where I think it's very easy for expectation to tip into criticism. Mm -hmm. And I read the Slate movie club where every, at the end of the year, they get like a few critics on, they all debate stuff. And um, I thought something that David Ehrlich, who wrote for it, something he said really stuck out to me. And he was like, you know, thank because some people were saying Hateful Eight did not deliver on expectation. Like, it wasn't what I thought it would be, right? Mm-hmm. That's a common refrain that you hear applied to a lot of movies, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't like it because it wasn't what I thought it would be. He's like, thank God that, you know, movies aren't what you expect them to be. Right. It's kind of the point, right? right? So if you go into a film and you walk out and your initial feeling is, that wasn't what I thought it would be or that's not what I wanted, Right. Mm. Then maybe say, well, what was it then? Or what did I want? Or why did I want what I wanted? Mm. You know, and I and I my my theory was that a lot of people at this point, Tarantino's career, where he's tipping now into the area where I think anybody doing any job for as long as they're doing it can tip into self parody. Mm -hmm. So like everyone talks about the Spielberg face. Right. That look of awe and wonder they likes to mm-hmm. zoom in on like all of these, you know, Scorsese's long take. Right. Um, the way that he introduces characters and stuff, it's mm-hmm. it's become a trope. It's become something that you can expect. And I think more than just the filmmaking that you expect, he's using 70 millimeter. This is going to be crazy and whatever else that their expectations both good and bad that they now expect from Tarantino. And I think that's easier when they identify like, Oh, well that's childish for them to not just say like, Oh, that is weirdly childish or petulant in Pulp Fiction or something earlier Mm -hmm. than now where they have all this history of movies. And they say, this is just Tarantino not getting blank, right? Mm -hmm. Not getting women, not getting the N word, not getting all these things. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that it, it ends up revealing more about the person who's watching the film than it does about the film itself. Exactly. Yeah, that was my basic argument. 
is I felt like the criticisms of this film ended up saying, I now know more about you. Right. I don't know any more about the film. Right. Yeah. The only and the only thing with the um Jennifer Jason Lee's character, what was her name? Her name was Oh man, I was gonna her last name was uh Daisy Domergoo. Domergoo. The only thing that I think could have possibly sort of quelled that argument and what I was personally disappointed to not have in the movie was some sort of uh, application of her power, right? The entire movie is spent talking about how dangerous she is, but she's also literally spends the entire movie chained up and she doesn't do anything. So that was a little like, I was expecting something, you know, but she just doesn't do anything. Well, I kind of took it as, I thought it was interesting because you see her in a lot of scenes observing. Yeah. She's very observant of characters, of conversations. Even when she's not adding to conversations, she's very alert. That's the way that she struck me as she was playing her. And it made me think she could be seen as playing playing a role to get some to get somebody to slip up basically mm-hmm. so one of the first words out of her mouth is the n-word mm-hmm. and i think what she what she sees as soon as samuel jackson is introduced as a racial kind of construct that she can maybe play off of mm-hmm. because in the heart of almost any white character in that time is going to be some racist underpinnings. Right. So I think that she maybe identifies a person. How can I use them? Friend or foe? What is the best way to treat this person? I think she saw in Samuel Jackson as potentially somebody that she could get riled up or get this racial tension to come out if there is one Mm -hmm. to maybe get Kurt Russell and Samuel Jackson kind of going at each other or something. I mean that, and that to me is reading him, but I, it made me wonder if she was far more, if she was manipulating things more than we thought Mm -hmm. in the things that she was saying, or she's just very, very ignorant. Right. And, and it's just spouting off, but doesn't fit with how watchful she is on conversations and on characters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, I, I just didn't, I, I didn't see any of it. The second time I, I saw, I saw it specifically to look for clues um, that led up to the climax of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see any of that. She, she's either a psychopath. Right. Or she's far more, um, aware and, and active uh-huh. intellectually in these scenes. Then. What did you think of the acting and in particular Walton Goggins and Michael Madsen? So Walt- Who, Ma- Michael Madsen does not have a big role. Right. Wal- Walton Goggins is an interesting character. I am somebody who watched all of Justified, 
which is oh, really yeah like Walton you watched the shield too right I watched the shield too mm-hmm. Walton Goggins has always hit me as an over actor yeah he's he's always kind of going at it at, at 11 he's really teethy he's really he teethy. makes a lot of use of his teeth and he makes a big use of his accent yeah like now I have not People love Walton Goggins, especially mm-hmm. off of Justified. And he did have an interesting character. He was good in The Shield. And and he's mm-hmm. good, decent in The Shield. Um, I'm not a huge fan of him, but I have to say that he worked for me, mainly in this. And I was laughing at his stuff early on mm-hmm. in a way that I wasn't expecting to. And I felt like... I felt that kind of rise again, like uh, Walton got doing his thing, his mm. accent thing, and kind of leaning into these characters. I think a little too hard. He's being mm. a little too like earnest. It seems like as an actor, um, but I just kind of relaxed. I said I'm not going to get worked up over how he delivers his lines and the mm-hmm. kind of the cadence that he'll settle on. That I feel like is actorly. It doesn't feel conversational when he says his lines. It feels very forced and mm-hmm. very like measured and like I am this is me acting. Um but I, but I just went with it and I had a good good time with it and I felt like at the end of the f- of the film he he pulled it off mm-hmm. where when it was there's a moment where he needs to make a decision and I found that when he made his decision I was fully invested in that character mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I didn't expect to be. Uh, in terms of Michael Madsen, uh, every, in the way that Tarantino framed him and everything, it made me think of Kill Bill. And it made me think Michael Madsen has become a player with a specific part to play. Mm-hmm. And Tarantino's going to use him in that part every single way and shoot him from the same angles. Mm-hmm. Every movie has this kind of from the bottom up look that started in Reservoir Dogs when he starts his little dance scene. Mm-hmm. He's kind of framed low. And it happens in Kill Bill when he's like, she's coming to kill us. Mm-hmm. And we deserve to die. you know. Mm-hmm. And then he does it again in Django Unchained. And I, I I just felt like that was more of a Tarantino thing. But See, I he think didn't it's work a Michael a Madsen thing. Do you? I think yes, it's a because, both of them thing. No, because I think he... I think the only thing that he knows and maybe this is bleeding out from his own idea of himself either way i'm assuming way too much but he he plays the cool guy role to 11 and mm-hmm. no matter what he's doing and in reservoir dogs and in kill bill it's excusable because those are modern movies in and uh, and I will say I do not like Michael Madsen. Period. I don't like him in anything he's in because that cool guy thing just kills it for me. And in this, it's just like this cool guy character that you've created for yourself does not exist in the 1800s. 1800, right. It just does not exist. This is not real. And so he just—I mean, like I said, he's not in it a lot, mm-hmm. but that just killed me some of it is the way it's filmed too like you know filming him looking up or whatever exactly it's always that look up you know but but yeah michael madsen no thanks walton goggins 
I I feel like he he comes into the film at a ten, and by the end he's at like twenty, and it doesn't it didn't ruin the movie for me obviously because I like the movie, but I could have done with a more toned down performance from Walton Goggins. He is definitely going for it, and mm-hmm. by the end he is like swaying and limping and. especially the second time I I watched it, it felt a lot more shouty to me. You know what I mean? It felt like by the time I got to the end of the movie, it felt like I had just watched a lot of people yelling at each other for a long time. (laughs) Even though that's really only like the last couple minutes. I want to watch it again. I might have more of that reaction. I don't doubt it. Like I say, I'm not a huge Walton Goggins fan, but... I found that it was easy with this movie to turn off my Walton Goggins meter sure. and just have it go neutral. Yeah. So how did you feel about the reveal of Channing Tatum towards... I have a bigger issue Channing Tatum. With his acting or just with his reveal, uh, his, his story arc? With his reveal, I, I, you know, I don't mind his story arc. If I really wanted to nitpick, I would nitpick... His character being in the basement right. and doing what he did or what he didn't do, right. knowing that at all times he had the numbers to do something more mm-hmm. than what he ended up doing. Right. Um, you know, even to the point where he's like, say goodbye to your nuts and you could have done a better shot and just kind of ended it right there. Right. Or what happens between the ball shot and and Jackson getting to the bed. To the yeah. bed, right? Yeah. Like, you shoot once, and then what happened? You Now, well, I think Walton Goggins started shooting into the floor maybe a little bit. I but, don't know. But I, you know, I don't know. I I feel like you could really dig into that character's motivations and where has he been. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I wasn't crazy about his acting coming out of there. Um, but I like him as a presence. And so when he did appear, I was like, oh, Tatum, but Tarantino's known for his casting. Mm-hmm. And I I probably would have loved to see a bigger surprise of maybe an actor that's been doing it longer who we've forgotten about and that he's going to make, mm-hmm. you know, make stand out in this role. Right. And Tatum didn't really stand out in this role. And I didn't see why he would choose Channing Tatum over anyone else. Like, do... Put Josh Hartnett in there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, put somebody who's kind of moving out of our public consciousness, but put James Vanderbeek. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not James Vanderbeek. Yeah. But uh what would you think of Tatum? I was fine. His accent was a little strange. It's a little wandery. Yeah. But I was fine with him as a character. I did not like the so the the main reason I wanted to watch it a second time is because I wanted to go back and find the clues that were hinting to, hey, there's another guy you don't know about in the basement. Because I was watching it pretty closely the first time, and I didn't see any of that. I didn't see, and not only that, I didn't see any of the things leading up to... um. Uh, Sam Samuel Jackson's mystery solver, you know, 
Encyclopedia Brown work that he does. Outside of the obvious stuff that they that they that you are shown, you know what I'm saying? Like there are certain things you you see, like the um, jelly bean laying on the floor. There are little things here and there that let you know, hey, something is wrong. You don't know quite what it is, but you know that something is a little bit off. And you can see that he's suspicious when they're in the stables and he's questioning Bob, all that stuff. What I didn't like is, and maybe all of all, all of this, it, I'm sure this is exactly how Tarantino wanted it to play out. Maybe what I would suggest is too showy for him, is revealing too much. He wanted it to be a complete surprise. But I would have liked a moment or at least somewhere in the background to see an empty space on the wall where the where Minnie has taken down the sign that Samuel Jackson is talking about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's that's not in the movie anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I would have liked some sort of clue to when I see the movie again to be like, "Oh, right there is Tarantino saying Hey, there's a guy in the basement. But when you see it the first time, you have no idea. And and my example, my perfect example of this is Shutter Island. Mm-hmm. You get to Shutter Island and and uh the you you see what the twist is at the end of Shutter Island and all of a sudden, I think that they don't they start to show you some things at the end. Mm-hmm. But when you watch that movie for a second time, you're seeing all of these things that you didn't think about twice the first time you right, saw it. Right, right. And the way that, I mean, I remember specifically the cave scene with the fire exactly. going. And it's like the way that it's shot and the way that the fire's working, mm-hmm. it's showing you kind of his psychosis. And there's also that scene where he's being interviewed or something and he takes a drink and the glass is actually em- empty. empty. And mm-hmm. it's like, holy cow, how did I even miss that the first yes. time I saw the movie? Yeah. Oh, it's it's so like, good. and that is like... That those are the things that make me excited to watch yeah. a movie, especially watch it a second time. And none of that is in this movie. Okay. It is just a f- completely blind reveal. Which, like I said, maybe that's what he was going for. To me, it feels a little bit like a get out of jail free card. You know what I mean? Because you've you've ratcheted up this tension mm-hmm. between these two characters to where it can literally do nothing but break. How are you going to get out of it? Oh, here's this thing that I'm just. It just feels like you're just writing yourself out of a corner. So I'll I'll try and counterpoint a little bit. Um, <clears throat> although I want to say that your position is completely valid. But my my counterpoint would be I loved when they revealed that he was in the basement. And the reason why I loved it is because Samuel Jackson has encyclopedic knowledge of minis. Yeah. He knows everything. Right. And you know that he's been slowly piecing this thing together and putting it together uh, this whole time that, that he's been working on it too. He's thinking that they have a little more time and you know that he's, he's not anticipating there being another person that he can't see. That's true. And that's what I love that with his encyclopedic knowledge, he overlooked the basement and I could yeah. see myself overlooking something like that too. Feeling like I'm on to something. I'm figuring something out. No one else is on this the way that I'm on it. And I'm slowly putting things together. And I get so caught up in that that I forget the obvious, which is 
Minnie's has a basement. Mm-hmm. I need to check that or I need to be aware of that. And I love that Samuel Jackson's character misses that. And that's and that's the thing that, you know, plays in his downfall. Yeah. So I that that would be my my small pushback against that. I would say too that I think Tarantino wanted to play out the way they did. And I don't know how much he wanted to be a mystery right. versus you know, including a shot like that, like Shutter Island, which is all about the mystery. It's all right. about films like that. Um, so I, I'm with you though that you know to to see a to see a shot where you see the outline of a missing um, sign or just see a look from Jackson might be nice. But I like the way that the reveal played out. Yeah, yeah, that was the that. And like I said, that just bothered me a little bit. It soured me on the ending a little bit. Um, how did you feel about the structure of the movie? So it's... it's. I, I was surprised at the return to the chapter format. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie is more or less straightforward. And then it's also adapting the chapters from Kill Bill and Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. And it's also adapting the voiceover from Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after Marquess gets shot in the nuts, you get the <laughs> flashback to the the gang showing up to the haberdashery. How, how did you feel about the format? Oh, I think the breaking up into chapters is one of the things that made it feel... Like it was moving along quickly for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. How did you feel about it, and how did you what did you think about the how did you feel about the flashback? I I I was into it. I loved it. I loved breaking the story down into that format because right when you felt like something, like maybe a scene was going too long, or because you know people complain about being talky, I I really do think the chapters move. All of a sudden, a scene would end, and then another chapter would start, and you'd be like, okay. Here mm-hmm. we go. Now the next movement, right? So it's kind of signifying that moves are happening where if I think it was just all talking, I think you would start saying, well, what, when is this going to start happening? But um, but I like him using those chapters and then you anticipating what the chapters are foretelling, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um in terms of the flashback all the way back, I liked it. I did feel like some of those some of those reveals were obvious in a way that I wish there was more of the subtle reveal of like the jelly bean. Mm-hmm. That I didn't know that I was ever going to get that jelly bean explained mm-hmm. when I first saw Samuel Jackson. But when you saw it, you knew that it meant something it was meant wrong. Something. I right. knew it meant something. Then to see how it got there mm-hmm. i i was like oh i'm that's clever that's good i like how that tied in together but then the door was just kind of like yeah i mean anybody walking through that door where minnie's missing i think already i'd be like you killed them didn't you right. <laughs> like this door just doesn't happen to like not fit like right. this yeah you know and they didn't even try to hide that and when you see what happens, you're like, that made the door stand out a little too much. Where I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, why would anybody believe that that door was just like, oh, Minnie's door is broken. Yeah. Um, so anyway, 
I wish that there were more of the jelly bean reveals and less of the door reveals in the in the flashback. Mm-hmm. But I like the way that it happened. And what I do like about the door reveal is one of the characters, maybe it was Kurt Russell, when he first walks, when they first get in the haberdashery, and he asks, uh what happened to the door or something. And he says something offhandedly like is probably the Mexican or something like that. And sure enough, it was right. <laughs> so I thought that was a <laughs> that nice, was okay, a nice yeah. touch. Well, th- there you go. That's exactly what I'm saying. I, maybe on the second time I would pick up on even those little, little hints yeah. that were dropped in. Uh, so another, uh, another big to do about this movie is, is the violence. And, before seeing it, I read of, I believe it was of either a Vulture or a New York Mag review. It was the only review I read, spoiler-free review, and they basically said, we like this movie up into the violence, and that, and the violence was so egregious and so over the top that it made us not like the movie. And so going into it, that that was my expectation, um, and having seen all of Tarantino's movies to hear that made me think, wow, this is going to be really, really bad. Um, coming out of it, obviously I didn't feel that way at all. My, now my wife did. She thought it was by far his most violent movie. And we've, we've since gone back and watched Inglorious Bastards and Django and her, she has she feels like her position has been reinforced and I feel like my position has been reinforced. (laughs) And I think the difference is that the violence in hateful eight is it's first of all, it's a lot more personal because it's uh, it's not blindly shooting into a theater full of Nazis, right? It's happening to people that we've spent a lot of time with or in the case of the flashback, it's happening to people who are completely innocent and being absolutely hospitable to these people who are just killing them for the sake of killing them, more or less. And so it, it's very mean-spirited. But at the same time, like that's the nature of the characters you're dealing with. And I understand it's mean-spirited, and it might feel a little uncomfortable, but it's like, yeah, they're not real people. <laughs> not watching real people die. Um, so that's kind of my takeaway from the violence is that it is violent. Don't get me wrong. It de- and it definitely gets crazy at the end, but I don't see it as worse than Brad Pitt carving a Nazi symbol into Christoph Waltz's head or them shooting a Tommy gun into Hitler's face or the shootout scene in the plantation in Django Unchained. Like, you want to take that scene alone, like 30 people are killed in that scene. And and they're killed in the same way as in this movie where they get shot and this ridiculous squib shoots out of them. I mean, like, the entire inside of that plantation is red by the time that scene is over. And in Django, you have the Mandingo fight. Exactly. Which... That one was. You have two men beating each other to death, and then you have using. You have he gets his eyes gouged out. You have a guy who's who's torn apart by dogs. 
Yeah, that one I remember happening. It's worse in Christoph Waltz's flashbacks. Right. But he does have flashbacks of it. Um, and in Glorious Bastards, you see a guy get beat to death with a bat. Like, you see it happen. It doesn't cut away. It, it does zoom out, but it's still right there on the screen. So I think it's a matter of obviously degrees we're talking about here. <laughs> it maybe feels a lot more personal, but it didn't bother. It honestly didn't bother me at all in Hateful Eight. There was one scene that I remember hoping he would not show me. And that was in the flashback to the four passengers mm-hmm. chapter where they track down the guy who's helping, mm-hmm. you know, put up the horses or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's hiding yeah. in the shed. I remember when Michael Madsen, right, finds him with a shotgun. I remember thinking, don't show him getting his yeah. head blown off. And it doesn't show anything. And it cuts to his feet. Yeah. And you see the body jerk and then right. some blood come down. But I remember feeling like, th- thank you. Um, so, I mean, I got to my limit of violence with this film. Yeah. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that people are disassociating the violence of Inglorious Bastards, especially because Inglorious Bastards is, I think, easily... It's easy to argue that Inglorious Bastards is a better overall film. Yes. So I think what people are remembering is the opening scene, mm-hmm. which people are like, top 10 scene of all time yeah. is that opening. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. And, um, and they're remembering the violence through those lenses where Django, I think people dismiss as a, as a lesser Tarantino. And I, I, therefore, I don't think people are as critical of it. But Hayfley being the new one, I think... You know, you don't have much to go on other than, yeah, he talked at me for half the movie and then he blew everyone's head off for the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right that it's just more personal and and, and and the violence is more extreme on on the people yeah. that we know. Right. Than with, like you said, like I don't know that Nazi gang is head caved in mm-hmm. and he's a Nazi. <laughs> so. Right. Um, so do you have any, I have a couple of cleanup questions that I want to ask. Do you have any major, any other major things you want to talk about? So what, what stood out to me in the hateful eight, what I are, what I would argue if anybody cared to have a conversation with me about it, um, concerning, especially the misogyny Mm -hmm. is I would say, go to the two scenes, uh, first where, Kurt Russell pistol whips mm-hmm. Jennifer Jason Lee. And again, the guys behind us oh, um, yeah. who erupted in laughter at every N word mm-hmm. early on and every violence against um, Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Mm-hmm. You have it followed by Samuel Jackson kind of reacting like a smile, maybe mm-hmm. like a nervous smile. But then it cuts back to Jennifer Jason Lee, and she's just looking at Samuel L. Jackson. Mm-hmm. And Tarantino holds on her until you see the blood start to run down her face. Mm-hmm. And then, only then does he cut. And what that did for me 
is it made the moment not about the initial shock laugh of the violence that you're not expecting. You're not expecting him to pistol whip mm-hmm. her. Um, and it moves it into something that I then have to reckon with my initial reaction. The second uh, moment is when he breaks her nose, mm-hmm. when he elbows her. And after that, she gets her whole she gets a whole music montage mm-hmm. of the camera holding on her face as she deals with her nose, sits there, her face is covered in blood, looks at Samuel Jackson, holds his eyes, and smiles. She winks. And winks. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you you have to reckon with the violence that's done against her in those scenes. If he's just about the misogynistic punchline, mm-hmm. then he would cut at the punch mm-hmm. and leave it to be like, she got clocked. Right. But then he makes you look at her face and deal with the repercussions. And I felt like our theater had to deal with the echoes of that awkward laughter. <laughs> and we had to sit there with it. And hopefully they, but I know I did, I had to sit there and be like, Oh man, that initial reaction is not the right one to have. Right. You know, that's the same thing with the N word. I feel like he uses it so much in this narrative that you have to reckon with it after a while. Mm-hmm. It's not just the shock value. Of, she said the N word there. <laughs> it's man, they are saying it a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm uncomfortable now. Mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciate that Tarantino makes us uncomfortable with his violence and with the use of the N-word, and it makes the audience have to deal with it in a different way than just as a comedic punchline. Well, and, and for me, especially with the, with, the, with the N-word usage, you can see that the characters are using it as a they're using it to be spiteful, right? They're using it sort of as a tool to try and get at Samuel L. Jackson. And you can see Samuel L. Jackson more or less does not give a care about them saying it. And which to me makes them using it and how powerful they think it is. That is, that is funny to me because it's like so obvious that they're just, trying to get something out of right. Sam Jackson and we when we first saw the movie we saw the movie in Hampton and it was uh largely a black crowd and the use and that is how the use of the n-word went over in that theater Ev- not every single time but most of the times there's a couple times when someone in this movie really like spits it out mm. And it got a laugh in our in the Hampton Theater because it's like, wow, this guy is really trying to be mean or whatever, but he just sounds like an idiot. And it's funny. Whereas when we saw it here in Virginia Beach, it really took the air out of the room. And it, for me, made the viewing uncomfortable. It just got real quiet during those moments. Um, and I think it is a case of maybe applying more meaning than what Tarantino was actually putting into it. I have no doubt in my mind that he knows exactly what he's doing when he uses the N word in his movies, the way he uses it, Mm -hmm. especially now in his movies, whether you want to say the same thing about his earlier movies, that's, I think that's a different discussion. I would say now he knows exactly what he's doing and he's doing it exactly for that reason. 
so it that that never bothered me. The I think you're spot on with the with with them hitting her. It's like you're left with it, he 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 pissed the whips her in the beginning, and it's brutal when it happens, mm-hmm. and it's the sound of the pistol whipping and there's also this this like squelch that she lets out when it happens that yeah. is just stomach churning and then you're left to actually look at it and be like for the meatheads behind us that thought the initial blow was hilarious th- now this is what you have to look at for the next 10 15 seconds like you're looking at the actual consequences of this and hopefully they got something out of that but i do absolutely think that was on purpose me too. Um, okay, so I would say overall, I really liked the movie a lot. The ending disappointed me a little bit, but I thought it was good. Can good we, enough to see it twice. Can we talk about the score too really quickly? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I'm not that interested in scores. Oh, man. The score is great. It is great. It is really good. That from the opening kind of baseline yeah the score is really great just amazing like that and that has burrowed into my brain yeah so yeah i mean to me i'm sorry if i cut you off but no go ahead but i i feel the same as you which is why i'm anxious to see a second time to come back to earth on this film a little bit Mm -hmm. because i feel like when i hear the negative reaction I did not see that my first time through and it pushes me further into my view of being like, oh yeah. And then what he says about racial reconstruction, right? And who are the two characters left at the end? And what can we hope in this racially divided culture that we can't even identify, you know, Um, because the racism is so kind of a part of our culture. What can we hope to come out of a, Union. It would look something like Walton Goggins and Samuel Jackson at the end. Mm-hmm. It's it's messy. It's bloody. It's you know they they are united at the end, but then they're also not together. And there's a there's a chance that the guy they're hoping to be a good guy could turn on Samuel Jackson at any moment at the end. Mm-hmm. And I loved what that was saying. And it came down to, I think, a racial decision because that's. I mean, Daisy, right? Daisy Domergu. Mm-hmm. She she made the appeal on a larger force coming, but she also made it on a racial basis. Mm-hmm. And Walton Goggins has no love for Samuel Jackson's character, mm-hmm. yet he still stands his ground and, and does not turn against Samuel Jackson. And I, 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 I thought that was great. And what is that saying about racial relations? I don't know, but because people have so dismissed the violence and the misogyny, it makes me think like, no, he's saying something there too. And I don't know what it is, but I want to investigate. And he could be saying nothing, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, it's really pushed me further into this camp of loving the movie. So I'd like to see it again and then come a little back towards the middle. But mm-hmm. I, I really loved it. Okay. I have some cleanup questions before we uh, move into the end of the show. Samuel Jackson's blowjob story. Did you like it, first of all? And was it real or was it fake? We talked about this a little bit after the we saw the movie. Uh, that's the kind of humor that doesn't really work for me too much. Um, what Tarantino did with it was great. Mm-hmm. I, I told you I love the way they cross-cut Samuel Jackson 
laughing maniacally in the flashback. Brewster gripping his chair. Gripping his chair and the way twisting. Twisting and then the way that he laughs maniacally in um the in the cabin. I love the fact that he has to be telling a story like that in order for the Daisy has a secret thing to happen. That mm-hmm. the story couldn't just be, hey, I killed your son. Right. It has to be so over the top that everyone is captivated mm-hmm. by this story. But it also has to be so over the top that Bruce Stern is going to then try and kill Sam try, Jackson. Try, try and kill him. So it serves its purpose. Yeah. And in that in that case, it overcame my initial. If this was just a punchline, mm-hmm. I'd be like, I'd be like, it's yeah. that's adolescent and, right. and not interesting. And it became something very interesting. And then it did not happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's obviously fake up to a, a point. I think Sam Jackson absolutely killed, killed his son. It obviously just didn't happen like that. And I, I will say I agree with everything you said. It's not my sense of humor, but I don't think it is a pure punchline. It's obviously serving a bunch of different uh, purposes. And what I will say, that to me is kind of the quintessential... Uh, revealing of the viewer's character scene to me. Not to cast judgment on anybody, but to me, your interpretation of that scene and of Sam and of his story and how he's telling it and the language he's using, to me, reveals more about your character and sort of how you view the movie and your personal beliefs than it does the the movie. I mean, it's it's pretty clear, at least to me and to you, what the purpose of that story is. Right. There's not much interpretation you can do with it. Um, what did you think of the voiceover? So Quentin Tarantino does, does Tarantino, the voiceover. Right. He does it after the intermission when they reveal that the coffee's been poisoned, and he does it again. Is it... Before the flashback? I can't yeah, remember when he does yeah, it again, but he does, he does it again. Mm-hmm. Did it didn't strike you in any way? It struck me with the chapters and the it felt more like a like a story that's being told. Mm-hmm. Um I liked it as a as a as a director stamp where if you're gonna be like what we've agreed that Tarantino is a great filmmaker, mm-hmm. then you're going to do stuff like that. A, an average filmmaker would never, do, he'd be like, why would I do a voiceover? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. Does mm-hmm. it fit? I don't know. And I'm not, I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And Tarantino's like, I want to do a voiceover. I'm going to do a voiceover. <laughs> and he did it. And so I think there's a, there's a certain level again, where Tarantino has gotten to a point where, if he does a voiceover, I'm going to say, sure, mm-hmm. great. And he'll get, he gets a pass because of who he is that, yeah, a first time filmmaker who's like, now listen to me do a voiceover. Mm-hmm. You're going to be like, who is this yokel? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so yeah, I took that as like a, like it's what makes him him. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to, I'm going to have to have those things in his movies and I'm going to end up kind of being grateful that he's willing to do that yeah even though does it make sense yeah no right does he does his voiceover necessarily 
turn the narrative on his head in a way that he couldn't do it without it? No. Yeah. But he did it. He could have just as easily just put that scene in the middle of Samuel Jackson telling a story. Or just had it a a wide shot of the cabin and have it happening in the sort of background. And if you see it happening, you see it. You see if it. not, you you don't see it. Yeah. I it, it caught me. It definitely caught me off guard. It didn't obviously didn't catch me off the guard the second time I saw it. So I didn't think much of it the second time. But the first time I saw it, it definitely caught me off guard because it's right in the middle of the movie. It has not happened before. It does not happen again except for a brief line later on. And that's that. Um, having watched Inglorious Bastards, he does the same thing in Glorious Bastards with Samuel Jackson. Um, so it it makes sense in that perspective. Yeah. All right, last question. What did you think about the... At the end of the movie, there is a lot of slow motion dialogue. What did you that? There's what did you think about that? Yeah, there's a, a scene where Samuel Jackson says something. Mm-hmm. Give me my gun. Is he says a couple things, and it's completely in slow motion. I laughed at that, <laughs> and I think that's Tarantino's. I think that's what he wants you to do. Yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Again, a directing move that I would not have done right. um, and does not make sense. But I'm glad Tarantino did it. But right? it's so crazy and bizarre <laughs> yeah. that I just I just laughed. Yeah. And I was like, I guess it's what you wanted sure. me to do. Right. And sure. Yeah. I was just kind of like, all right. <laughs> I guess that's what you're doing. Because it goes from just like a regular line into Samuel Jackson's one line in slow right. motion. And it's only him back, speaking in slow right, motion. And it's back <laughs> right. So I guess this reaction right now that we're having, remembering it, is the point. And yeah. therefore, great. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's Hateful Eight. I would say go see it. I would have liked to see it in the 70 millimeter mm-hmm. but the it's not show. playing anywhere near here near. so no chance of recommendation <laughs> do you remember what oh, the recommendation man. was from our last the show? one that killed this <laughs> podcast for at least a month uh was the cobbler yeah the the only thing that's interesting about this though is that you ended up not hating it right well if you can even remember that far back this is what i remember i remember not hating the movie i remember thinking that this is not a good movie but it's definitely not as bad as I thought it was going to be. That's all I remember. All I can say is... I mean, especially hearing Adam Sandler, Method Man, he fixes shoes, and when he puts on the shoes of the people he's fixing, he turns into that person. And it is somehow not as terrible as that. those three things combined sound. I think it's worse because 
what ends up being is I'm I, the, at the point when he kills Method Man with a high heel shoe. You think that you've fallen through some kind of wormhole into an alternative dimension, or you think, oh, they're somehow gonna roll that back, and uh, and and that's not actually gonna be what happened. Nope, it is. He killed well, Method Man with a stiletto, yeah. in shoved in his neck, <laughs> and you see it. And it is, but I mean, there's a. I think there's a significant portion of this movie that is like a legitimate, a legitimately good movie. No, the first, I would say, twenty or thirty minutes oh, is gosh. like, wow, this is somehow not an absolutely absurd bad movie. When when the and Latina, then it, yeah, it gets really when, bad. When the Latina um, reporter comes in and pulls him outside to say, "Look around you. Look at this neighborhood." We need to save this neighborhood. That is when I was like, started I don't, I don't remember banging my head <laughs> against the wall. Then when he kills somebody with a stiletto, then I kind of perked up. And then when you get to this nonsensical ending where his sure. father was forever there, but not there. Mm-hmm. He was the, 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 the neighbor. He was Steve Buscemi. He was waiting to welcome him into the secret society of tailors or whatever. And then there's no reason why his father wouldn't have come out earlier and just said, it's me, son. It's just at the end of the movie, he just decides, here I am. Sure. But I mean, that's what I expect. I would say watch the first 20 minutes and then turn it off. No. And never think about it again. No. Because the first 20 minutes is like, is this, am I watching the wrong cobbler right now? And then, yes, it gets very bad and the ending is insane. But the first 20 minutes is like a legitimate movie. No, it's not. Within the 20 right. minutes, he gets pulled out to take a look at their okay. diverse neighborhood. Okay, that's a gonna bad get scene in of 20 minutes. Um, I have a recommendation for you, possibly. Seeing as how we're just getting back into the groove of things <laughs> right. after five months off from doing this podcast, at least. Um, maybe we'll take it a little easy on the recommendations at first. Um, so if you've already looked at this, we'll just won't have one. If not, I've got quite a surprise for you. Okay. So you watched the football game yesterday. You watched the Vikings game. Yep. I tweeted about this. Dead spin. Did you look at it? Oh, yeah. Okay. That was going to be my recommendation. Yeah. Those videos are great, right? So it's just a bunch of videos. Of reaction videos of Vikings fans watching the end of the game. And a dad destroying his cane? Yeah. One, right? Like, doesn't he need that? To, it looked like he kind of exactly. needed it. He just started yeah. smashing it on the floor. And then it's his wife. I thought that maybe it was his son. And at the very end of the video, you see his wife go, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but those... So Deadspin has an article where they're collecting all of the Vikings fans reaction videos to the um to the to Blair Walsh's missed goal and I don't know if this one was on there <laughs> but did you see the video of the people who were at the game and they thought he made it <laughs> they're like yeah and then slowly you see hands come down yeah. yeah and then it ends with the guy being like completely seriously being like 
congratulations, Blair Walsh. You just crushed a bunch of kids' dreams or something like that. It's like, what? <laughs> wow, guy. I, I find it interesting that it perfectly lines up with uh, Ace Ventura. Exactly. So, yeah, like laces out mm-hmm. and the laces weren't out. Right. But Blair Walsh was a stand-up guy. Did you read that too about how he kind of handled it and he answered all the reporters' questions as locker. Right. And then I read broke, that. Right. And then I he read here that down. and then he turned around and broke down and started sobbing. Sobbing. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, he, he held it together. He answered yeah. his questions. He owned up to it. And he he accounted for all of their points before that miss. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like for as much as he is to blame, the Vikings didn't score. Oh, yeah. I'll score a touchdown then, right. guys. Like, yeah. you know, play better D. Like, He's he's the scapegoat, but he he's not the sole person to blame. And did you see how they tried to whitewash all the Adrian Peter stuff, Peterson stuff for the game? No. About his the child abuse stuff? I didn't They th- tried to erase all of it and it was like Who's he, they? The the network. They ran this whole package, this interview with Peterson where he's completely um basically fabricating all the details of the thing and downplaying everything and they're not asking him any questions about it or pushing him on any of it. It was a total like, we're going to feature you here. We're going to make you look really good. So just don't say anything stupid. And that's what it was. And then immediately cuts back to, um, was it Mike Ditka? And he was like, I was beat as a kid and I think it's a good thing. And then it and then it cuts to Chris Carter, I think, is the other guy who like came out and said something about it when it happened, like taking a stand against it. And then it cuts to me. He's like, I have no problems with Adrian Peterson. It's just like, what uh, is going on? Like, like, look, I, I'm fine with you not talking about it, but, don't. but just don't talk about it. Yeah. Don't do this. It was. I, mi- I missed that. Yeah, it was disgusting. Um. So that's that's the show. This has been Everything's Interesting. We're back after a little bit of a break. I think we're going to be back um, recording again on Monday nights. Doing pretty much the same thing we were doing before, I guess, right? We haven't talked about it much, but we did the Leftovers podcast. Then we took a little bit of a break for the holidays. And now we're going to get back on track. And I think what we're planning to do is this podcast... We're still planning on doing a Westworld podcast. We've stopped the fantasy football podcast a while ago. It stopped itself. It stopped itself, right? Um, and and what we're going to do with the West? So with the Westworld podcast, with our leftovers podcast, with our True Detective podcast, instead of having different podcasts for all of those shows, we are instead doing. A still a separate podcast, but it's just going to be a television podcast in which we will cover those shows when they air. I think we'll also be able to do different things, like maybe um, with the Netflix series, um, like with Making a Murderer, we could have done like, here's, we're going to talk about episodes one through three, and then four through six, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying, instead of just doing an episode because they don't come out that way, uh, an episode by episode breakdown. And I feel like it would be a little arbitrary to be like, we're doing this once a week, even though we've probably already watched five of the episodes. But anyways, uh, that podcast is is still untitled. 
Um, so we'll talk more about that when we have that ready. But as of right now, we'll be doing this. We'll be back next week. I have a New Year's resolution for this podcast. Sure. So we listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. And I realize I'm sick of something. So there's one podcast I was listening to, and they were trying to get sponsored. Mm -hmm. And they kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And finally, they got sponsored. Can you take a guess who sponsored this podcast? Just randomly. Squarespace? Squarespace, right? Uh Squarespace. Uh What's the pie chart diagram (laughs) of podcasts that are sponsored by Squarespace? It's Squarespace. It's Audible. Right. right, Casper mattresses. Casper now Me is getting undies. on the game. Me undies. <laughs> I'm. We have not asked for a cent, and I don't want to ask for a cent until we get sponsored by somebody who does not sponsor <laughs> podcasts. Uh-huh. They're not known for sponsoring uh-huh. podcasts. You would never think that they'd sponsor a podcast, right. but they sponsor our podcast. Right. right now, if I could have my dream. It'd probably be a company like Sunkist because I love orange juice and right. I, I could drink orange juice during this thing. Uh-huh. But I would love for just a KitchenAid. Sure. Who would you love? Throw out a. I mean, I really don't know. Jolly Rancher? Who makes Jolly, Jolly Ranchers? Ranch- <laughs> <laughs> if we're talking Jolly- about free products, I would like Jolly Rancher. <laughs> I don't want a scent until we are, we are. I don't even want a scent. I just want Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> just keep us, just give us a bowl of Jolly Ranchers once a week, right? And we will, we will push your product. I don't want to say how much, but I'm willing. I'm willing to go a large chunk of our runtime in support of sure. Jolly Ranchers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and with that being said, as much as I would love Jolly Ranchers, I don't want to be sponsored by anybody. <laughs> I know it's a joke, but um, so yeah, we'll be back next week talking about, I guess, whatever we found interesting. Um, who knows? Who knows? Haircuts, by the sound of it, from at the least we'll have the that. <laughs> um, but I'm Justin Blizzard. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Blizzard with nine Z's. I'm at things come right. And uh, still have no idea how to close the show. (laughs) So I'll just say thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week.